We're seeing rising rates of mental illness in adolescence in recent years. This has paralleled a rise in social media use and the condition of being always online that's enabled by smartphones. But what evidence has emerged in this relatively new space? I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. To help us untangle this complex topic, I'm speaking with the authors of an analysis article entitled Smartphones, Social Media Use, and Youth Mental Health, which is published in CMAJ. Dr. Elia Abejaude and Dr. Carleen Triernecht-Naylor are joining me today to discuss. I've reached them in Toronto. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Now, I wonder if you can each tell our listeners a bit about who you are. Elia, why don't you go first? All right. So I'm a psychiatrist based primarily out of uh, Sick Kids Hospital in uh, Toronto. I um, spend my time working, uh, doing clinical work, research and uh, teaching and education. Clinically, my primary area of interest is in Tourette syndrome and related disorders. I also have an interest in uh, evaluation of the evidence base in psychiatry. I also do acute care, primarily inpatient care at SickKid, so I work a lot uh, with adolescents in acute distress. And Carlene? So I'm a fifth-year psychiatry resident here at the University of Toronto, and during my residency, I spent six months working at uh, SickKids, in part with Dr. Abby Jaoudet, and really got interested in this topic after repeated clinical exposure to the interplay between social media, smartphones, and the distress of young patients. So let's start with mental health, because in this article, we're drawing together some things, and it's not clear how these things are related. So let's start with mental health in teenagers. How have rates of mental distress changed over recent years for adolescents? So there's been a relatively recent and quite dramatic rise in terms of rates of mental health difficulties for young people. Um, So if we start with Ontario, where uh, we're based, 40% of teenagers now report moderate to serious mental distress, Uh, and that's a figure that has almost doubled over a five-year period. When we look at health service utilization, that's also changing. So uh, inpatient admissions uh, of children and adolescents for mental health reasons has increased substantially in the last decade, and I think it's important to note that this isn't across-the-board health service use. So admissions for other medical conditions in this age group have actually decreased in the same time period. So that tells us that something has gone awry quite specifically for the mental health of young people. Um, Self-harm and suicidality also do show some concerning trends. So for Canadian children and youth, suicide is now the second leading cause of death. Um, And there's been an increasing number of presentations for intentional self-harm to hospitals. Uh, And the bulk of that has really been in adolescent females. Now, when we look across the border to the U.S., uh, we we really do see identical trends in terms of rates of uh, distress and health service utilization. I just want to add from basically the perspective of uh, anyone working in an acute care setting in in North America, uh, this is something that uh, has been a very striking and fairly recent uh, increase. So I've started working on the inpatient unit at SickKids five years ago. and the way it looks now is very different already, even as recently as five years when I started. Uh, the volumes have been going up year after year. Every year we think we've seen the worst, and then the following year it's even worse than the preceding year in terms of the 
uh, adolescents presenting with uh, suicidality and self-harm behaviors. Um, so this has been a very recent, very striking, disturbing phenomenon to see develop so quickly. And, and it's been, um, it's not just our experience at SickKids. It's uh, when we are over, overwhelmed with patients who are bed space and we're trying to find them a bed somewhere else in the city, um, all the other hospitals are experiencing the same thing. And, and I know it is the case across North America because south of the border are editorials that are being written about, you know, how to manage patients admitted for mental health distress but are bed-spaced uh, on pediatric wards and such. Let's go on to talking about usage of social media in this population. Explain to us how it's changed over the years and how are adolescents using it? So... You know, there's a whole generation of young people who really have never known a world without access to the internet and social networking platforms. Um, and, you know, many people have expressed that this really has transformed the way in which these young people interact and communicate with each other. Uh, and smartphones are now ubiquitous. So there was a uh, large-scale survey in the United States published in 2018, uh, and in that survey, 95% of teens now have a smartphone or have access to one. And when the same survey was carried out just three years earlier, the figure was around 70%. So this is changing rapidly. Uh, when we look at quantity of use throughout the day, a significant proportion of teens are online on a near-constant basis. Um, there's interesting gender differences. So girls are far more likely to use social media and boys are far more likely to be video gamers. And particularly when we drill down into specific types of social networking, girls really dominate the visually oriented platform. So those are things like Instagram, Snapchat, uh, Pinterest, Tumblr. And, you know, most of our discussion uh, and in the paper is focused on adolescence. But I'll just note that these issues are cropping up earlier and earlier. Uh, so in another survey published in 2019, 42% of kids eight years old and younger have their own tablets. So these issues are on the, on the rise really across children and adolescents. I will just add that, uh, you know, when we're talking to patients who we see clinically and they refer to friends, it sometimes I, I'm still taken by surprise by assuming that they're face-to-face uh, in-person friends, but often they're digital friends. Sometimes they've never even met them in person. They could be somewhere halfway around the world. Uh, I've even seen patients talk about having, you know, my girlfriend or my boyfriend, and again, someone they may have never met, and it's just entirely digital. Well, that is fascinating. On this background of rising rates of mental distress, suicidality, and self-harm, we also have the usage of social media increasing in recent years. And there's some evidence that there's a link between these two things. How is it that this link was established? And are we jumping too quickly to conclusions about the association between these two things? So the initial studies were, um, and most of the studies, I should say, have been observational studies, large-scale observational studies that have raised uh, the concerns about there being such an association. But then the question comes up, which is, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg, as we know, association is not causation. However, there have also been um, a number of longitudinal studies, um, as well as empirical control trials, uh, showing adverse effects of um, uh, social media use and uh, different mental health measures. We've also seen exposure response relationship. So um, 
there have been, you know, if we think about it from a causality uh, criteria, there's the evidence we have so far fulfills um, a number of the Bradford Hill criteria for causality, uh, including um, a temporal association, a dose response relationship. This has been replicated by different groups using different study designs. So I think, uh, I don't think we can continue to wait um, at this point uh, to say that uh, this is a uh, concern is enough, there's enough concern that we need to act. So, and I do think acting is warranted, but you're right. Like we need to be also mindful uh, of the possibility that uh, we might not be completely uh, correct in, in attributing all the rise in mental distress and suicidality that's been happened in recent years to social media and smartphones. And yes, there are risks. If we if we put all our eggs in that basket, we may be giving disproportionate attention and and uh, spending resources uh, on the wrong issue. Um, there could be a missed opportunity in terms of addressing other issues that play um, both uh, with individual when it comes to individual patients working with uh, with individual patients and also in terms of uh, public health campaigns. And, uh, you know, we do need, you know, as clinicians, we know that often there is uncertainty in our work, um, and yet it doesn't mean that we are paralyzed and don't do anything. We, I think we need to be proactive uh, while at the same time gathering more evidence, uh, and at the same time we need to be open to making changes as needed to our interventions and being open to other issues uh, that may need to be addressed uh, with what's going on, both uh, at the individual level as well as uh, from a public health perspective. So what I'm hearing you saying is that it could be many and complex factors interacting that have contributed to this rise in mental distress, suicidality, and self-harm. But some evidence is pointing towards smartphones and uh, social media use as being causal. Yes. I mean, I think I think there's enough evidence at this point that I think... Uh, we are compelled uh, to act on this, um, on what we're seeing. Um, and uh, um, I'd be surprised if all of this is can be ascribed solely to social media and, uh, and smartphone use. So I, I do think it's a complex set of factors that are playing a role. Uh, but this is evidence that at this point we have, uh, from all the different factors we can speculate about, I think this is probably the one we have the most evidence about. It's more clearly circumscribed and measurable and uh, and definitely warrants uh, doing something about I'll just add on the sort of note of methodological issues, you know, one of the questions that uh, Dr. Abijode brought up is this issue of, you know, reverse causality. Um, but, you know, I think there are some other interesting things to think about when we're when we're doing studies in this field. And one is that, you know, social media changes rapidly, and it's challenging for research studies, I think, to move quickly enough to reflect the current trends. So, for example, up until recently, Facebook really dominated this landscape for young people, um, but now it's really about Instagram, Snapchat, and YouTube. So one of the challenges, I think, is is allowing the research to move fast enough to remain current. And then I think another issue that's worth flagging is uh, the fact that much of the data around uh, usage is self-report. Uh, and so I think it would be prudent going forward to be able to make better use of technology such as digital trace data to actually reflect uh, real usage among adolescents. So the link between social media and mental health, how does social media affect mental health according to the evidence? 
So there are quite a few ways in which social media can affect uh, mental health. And as well, I think that the devices themselves are important in this as well. So the smartphones or the screen, uh, digital screen based devices. Um, basically, you know, I was thinking uh, recently uh, back to uh, Marshall McLuhan's quote, quote uh, the medium is the message. And, and I think if he were around today or if he is seeing this from somewhere, he'd be in, uh, intrigued because I, I, it's hard to imagine a more apt context for where this applies. So when you're interacting with, with friends, uh, mostly digitally, so the other thing is um, youth are interacting more uh, with each other more through uh, social media than they are in person. And that brings a whole host of challenges that uh, comes with that. I mean, um, one is that uh, what you, when you're seeing someone's profile, online profile, this is not um, a realistic rep representation of someone's life. This is often uh, typically a very curated um, a view of, of, of someone's life. And then when you're looking at these highlights of someone's life and you, in contrast, you're aware of your own reality, uh, this can promote feelings of, of uh, inadequacy. Um, when you have, you know, friends, let's say, in real life that might just go out and for some reason might not include you in the outing. And as an adolescent, this might be passed, uh, you know, beneath your radar or be a non-issue. But, uh, but then if, if you're connected on social media and they're posting pictures and comments about their outing, um, you might feel uh, left out. In fact, there's, there's, there's a term that's been coined for this con uh, which is partly related to, related to this context, which is a fear of missing out. In the related to the feelings of inadequacy, there's been studies showing uh, young girls having more body image concerns after uh, spending time on social media. Um, the social media platform also, because there's no direct contact, uh, it might make it easier to interact with in ways that are counterproductive. And and we know cyberbullying is very common and all sorts of challenges uh, that come about related to that. Uh, the other thing is that's uh, disturbing is um, often there's uh, counterproductive uh, responses to expressions of distress on social media. And one is, it could be along the lines of cyberbullying. So, you know, someone expresses distress or even suicidality, and then they'll have people uh, insulting them or uh, even encouraging them uh, to, to self-harm. But it's also done in a way sometimes that is so on the surface, at least, is, is actually may come across as uh, supportive. Uh, you know, it's, it's not uncommon where um, we see patients and they say, my parents don't understand me, but my friends understand me. OK, so who are these friends? And as you go into it, it's if they're talking, basically, they're people they interact with on social media that are basically very overtly talking about self-harm and suicidality. Um, in a way that doesn't involve ways to kind of improve and get better. And quite the contrary, uh, people are sharing often, there's depict graphic depictions of uh, self-harm behavior, uh, there's detailed advice about suicide, and there tends to be a promote, there's, there's a lot of emotional contagion in all of that, and, and there seems to be a promotion of unwellness and romanticization of, of uh, mental illness. So this is yet another challenge that is um, increases the concerns with with mental health and, and spending a lot of time on social media especially if you are struggling to begin with 
And then the other thing is when, when people are spending a lot of time, as Carlene was saying earlier, the amount of time people near constant uh, basis on social media, um, hours a day, it comes at the expense of other things. It comes at the expense of real life uh, social interactions. And so as adolescents are developing to this very uh, important period in life, um, this might under, uh, undermine their acquisition of important uh, interpersonal skills and their social development. Um, the constant attendance to notifications can, can contribute to a state of hyper arousal. There's a lack of downtime. There's always a frequent exposure to intense emotional laden posts. And the other thing is, what, you know, you wonder when you see, you know, you can have posts that are with very extremely different valences in terms of emotions. Like you might see, you know, a post uh, with graphic depictions of some from, related to some calamity halfway around the world. And then the next swipe is that of, you know, a cute puppy. So you wonder what that's doing uh, to people's uh, emotions. The other thing is spending a lot of time on, um, uh, on social media is uh, often at the expense of other things like academics and other duties. And then often we see adolescence as a major source of stress is falling behind on academics and further contributing to, to their distress. And then um, there, I could go on and on, but I want to touch on a, a very important one at the end is, uh, as I mentioned, smartphones, uh, the, the, the devices themselves are important uh, because uh, the, the exposure to, to digital screens at night is, is contributing to chronic sleep deprivation. And when you're sleep deprived, your self-regulatory resources are weakened, and then it, it undermines your ability to cope with the distress that is uh, compounded by these other things that I mentioned previously. So all these things can interact with each other, um, and hence why these devices and social media may be playing such a such an important role in in uh, adolescent struggles today. So all that is really interesting, and it fuels my own worry as the parents of a twelve year old and a sixteen year old. And I have to tell you that I worry all the time about the amount of time that they spend online and what the consequences of that might be. Their frontal lobes are literally developing in this medium that is constant access to the World Wide Web. And so I think I can ask the question that's almost on every parent's mind, does social media addiction exist? And do we need to worry about this in our kids? Um, I guess it depends on how you define addiction. Um, there are studies, there are a fair bit of studies on uh, basically social media and, uh, and smartphone use in the sense of uh, what's called behavioral addiction, similar to other recognized behavioral addiction. And, um, you know, how people define it varies. But uh, basically, uh, it's when you're spending an inordinate amount of time at the expense of other activities and you're using it compulsively and have a hard time letting go. And, you know, let's not forget, these things did not come about just by chance. I mean, these uh, platforms, these social media platforms have been deliberately designed to capture people's attention. And this is done in, in very highly sophisticated ways, using behavioral psychology, neuroscience, artificial intelligence to promote behavioral reinforcement and behavioral addiction. I, I, I saw something in the news recently about someone who, who was recruited from... Um, the gambling industry, where he was involved in designing uh, slot machines and such. So every ping and pong and notification, the color, the delay of when it comes and such is very carefully and deliberately uh, done to, to, for people to get hooked with it. And there's been studies about the effect of that, uh, that this, if we can call it a behavioral addiction to smartphone use. 
And we know there have been even systematic reviews that show uh, this is associated with uh, suicidality and, and uh, self-harm behaviors. Um, and there's also been systematic reviews looking at um, this compulsive use that involves media multitasking and that it is associated with uh, negative effects on cognitive control, academic performance, and, and uh, social emotional functioning uh, in youth. Um, so, I mean, when you think about it, real life is much slower than the constant stimuli that one can be getting from the electronic world. And so it becomes much harder to pay attention and focus, let's say, in a, in a lecture when you're constantly used, your brain's constantly used a certain pace of external stimuli. Yeah, I'll just add, you know, I agree. I think it likely does exist. But as, as Elias said, you know, we haven't quite captured it clinically yet and researchers haven't agreed on a definition. Um, from a psychiatric standpoint, it's not in our clinical manual yet, but I think it's certainly on the radar and it'll be interesting to see how future revisions of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, do or do not include many of these more contemporary phenomena. So uh, gaming disorder, internet gaming disorder, for example, was flagged as a condition uh, worthy of uh, further study, and so that will be on the table uh, for the next round of revisions. Um, and the ICD has actually included in the 11th revision uh, this idea of gaming disorder. So I think, you know, thinking about gaming and smartphones um, they're likely related concepts, and I would not be surprised if clinically uh, this starts to show up in the uh, lexicon. Um, the other thing I'll flag is in a large survey in the U.S. Uh, published in 2019, 60% of parents felt their kids were addicted to their devices. So you're not alone, Dr. Patrick. Um, and, and, you know, adults are not immune here. Uh, so 40% of kids felt the same way about their parents in terms of smartphone addiction. So this is this is a serious issue across both young people and adults. You've touched there on gaming addiction. And I think it's important to note for this podcast that even though we're talking about the use of the internet and smartphones, some of which support gaming, this article is not about online gaming. It's almost an article in its own right. So we focus more on social media um, in this podcast. But I also wanted to touch on what you were saying about how adults are also uh, potentially addicted to their smartphones. And, and I'm very conscious of this when I'm kind of worrying about my children. I think it's quite normal for parents to look at themselves and go, am I enabling this or are they copying behavior that I'm modeling? And I do see that I'm use my smartphone a lot and I always have it with me. And I think that kind of helps me to balance how much control I try to have over my kids' social media use. I mean, we were talking before we started recording about not parent bashing. And I, I would like to talk a little bit about this very fine line that we have between the harms of social media and the very certain advantages that it gives us in the world of being connected and having ready access to information and being able to share ideas and show support for people, as well as having these other problems. Do you have any comments about that? So, you know, I think it's a fantastic point. And, you know, one thing that comes to mind uh, almost immediately is, um, is really about the fact that some individuals seem to be more vulnerable to uh, the detrimental impact of using smartphones and social media than others. 
So, you know, what we know is that the impact of social media on depressive symptoms is much greater for people who have low levels of in-person interaction. So those individuals, young people who continue to socialize with friends in real life, so to speak, are relatively protected from the harms. Um, so I think a big part of this is likely around, um, you know, focusing on harm reduction. And harm reduction here likely means talking to kids about continuing to do things outside of their phones and outside of social media. And if they uh, have friends online, um, encouraging them to, con- to continue to connect with those individuals in person. Uh, and that can possibly mitigate um, a great deal of the harms for some, some teens. I think, the, you know, if we see this as a way to supplement face-to-face interactions, I mean, especially in this day and age of uh, migration, and a lot of people have close friends and family who are away, uh, who are far, and uh, so social media for sure, uh, uh, I think, helps a lot in staying connected in this respect. And then if you have, so if you have close friends, friends with whom you are close in terms of face-to-face interactions, relationships in general, uh, connecting with them on social media as well doesn't replace it. It, it just can can supplement it. But uh, the issue is, is when it replaces it or replaces it. So far, we've been talking about mental distress, and you've talked about um, sense of self and body image, depression, other forms of mental distress. In the beginning of the podcast, we mentioned self harm and suicidality. We haven't talked too much about that yet. So tell me about self-injury and suicidality and what studies say about the link of these things to social media use? So, you know, I think here the studies are quite compelling. Um, There are large observational studies that have linked spending uh, more time on social media uh, per day with higher rates of suicidality and depressive symptoms. Uh, And again, as we heard a little bit at the outset of the podcast, there does seem to be an interesting dose-response relationship. Um, so across a few different studies, uh, the idea of spending two hours or more per day uh, on social media and smartphones seems to be a uh, risk threshold. Um, and the other interesting thing here is that girls are at higher risk. So uh, girls are far more likely to experience adverse impacts in terms of suicidality and self-harm uh, from social media use. The other worry is that it's very easy to find a vast array of information about suicide online, uh, including factual information about high lethality methods. A systematic review was published in 2016, uh, and they found that social media platforms included normalization of self-harm behavior and discussion about practical issues regarding suicidality. And really, there's a great deal of material online that that can romanticize suicide and doesn't actually offer sufficient information about help, resources, uh, or alternatives to suicide. You know, in an even more extreme example of online content, there's the rather disturbing phenomenon of live streaming suicide. So the first so-called live stream suicide happened in May of 2016, and people can tune in and watch and comment. And this is very problematic in young people because of issues of social contagion. So access to the internet more broadly can be hugely problematic for young people in terms of uh, how we report on suicides and how information about them uh, is conveyed. You talked a bit about how social media affects sleep. You talked about how screen use affects sleep. 
How is loss of sleep associated exactly with um, mental well-being? So we all know, even from ourselves personally, when we are sleep-deprived, we are not in our best state of mind, both cognitively and also in terms of emotional control, and uh, we might be more irritable and such. And so when we are chronically sleep-deprived on an ongoing basis, especially with young people, whose self-control is still in, in development, it's not surprising that they, they can have more difficulties with, with uh, self-regulation and, um, and in related to that uh, will have more uh, emotional difficulties and such. Um, and this has been studied uh, fairly uh, extensively at this point in terms of the roles and specifically in terms of the role of uh, social media and uh, digital devices. Um, there's a systematic review of 20 studies that showed the bedtime media use was associated with decreased duration and quality of sleep and with excessive daytime sleepiness. Uh, in one particular survey, it showed, it showed the majority of students uh, have been exchanging communication uh, uh, through their social media after beds, uh, after lights were out. Um, and it's it's interesting. Well, actually, when I talk about in one particular study that is actually quite compelling, it's an empirical study. This is a randomized study, and it was a, cr- a crossover control trial where they had uh, participants use um, digital devices before bedtime, and the control was just reading print, regular print. And um, basically, uh, use of digital devices uh, was associated associated with a longer time to fall asleep, uh, decreased evening sleepiness, uh, there was a reduced melatonin secretion, there was a delay in circadian clock, um, there was a reduce in the amount of REM sleep and a delay in the REM sleep, and there was reduced uh, alertness the next morning. And then another uh, study that was uh, quite interesting where they randomized people to one of three groups, uh, to either of three groups, and the groups were you could use your, your cell phone at will uh, in bed. The other group is the cell phone uh, was by the bedside but off. And then the third group was uh, the cell phone was outside of the room. And uh, not surprisingly, if you were using their cell phone at bedtime, the sleep was uh, disrupted. But um, what is interesting is that even having the phone off by the bedside, it wasn't as disrupted as, as uh, using the phone but it wasn't as good as having the phone outside of the room. So even the mere presence, physical presence of the phone uh, had a disruptive effect. Wow, that's very compelling. I always think as a medical editor, I see a lot of articles about the size of the problem. There's always more evidence about the size of the problem and the various aspects of the problem than there is about the solution. I'm interested in your take on how we move towards a solution Given that it's not realistic to do away with smartphones or cut kids off from internet access completely or even ban social media, what do you say to kids who have mental health difficulties that appear to be related in some way to social media or smartphone use? And how do you counsel them and possibly even their parents? I think you're right, and we need to acknowledge that these platforms and devices are here to stay. Um, and again, as I, as I mentioned before, I think it's, it's really a harm reduction approach as opposed to total abstinence to borrow from, you know, the substance use literature. So for young people who are using a lot of social media, again, it's probably about encouraging them to also spend time with friends in person because that might be protective. 
Um, and we may be able to boil from things like motivational interviewing to help young people start to make shifts in their pattern of online behavior. I would speak frankly to young people about the studies that have started to show a dose-response relationship between screen time and social media use and adverse outcomes. Um, and again, two hours seems to be that risk, risk threshold in the literature. Um, so, you know, things like heavy usage pop-up warnings, which uh, you can put on phones now, uh, can alert young people that they've exceeded the two-hour-per-day mark. Um, and if we know that that increases risk, that could be flagged to them. The other piece, I think, is um, parental modeling does become important, um, as you highlighted earlier. Um, and, you know, heavy parental phone use has been associated with detrimental family outcomes. So I think it can actually be about raising a, a family-wide plan, parents and children, uh, to try to move towards more uh, healthy and productive smartphone use. I think sleep hygiene is an area where um, you know, really the, the data around adverse impact on sleep are so compelling um, and um, it's, you know, feasible to put phones away for a set period before bedtime uh, and that can be, I think, modeled by parents and done, again, for the whole family. Um, and the last thing I would think about uh, both as parents and clinicians is I think we should really be talking to young people about privacy because privacy concerns are increasing. Um, and, you know, there's worry that young people are leaving behind a vast amount of information about themselves online, some of which may be inappropriate. And this information uh, can not only impact safety in the present, uh, but can also later impact uh, education and job prospects. So that's something that I think is worth mentioning. I would say for young children, there's no rush to get them um, screens, uh, cell phones or tablets. Carlene referred earlier to the high proportion of very young kids who already have such devices, um, I think it's best to delay. Um, how, till what age? There's no, there's no age that we can specify. Uh, it probably depends on many factors, including the, the young person themselves. And then uh, limiting the amount of time in general, uh, setting boundaries in terms of where they're being, uh, the, the devices are being used, preferably to be used in common areas at home. But I think, it's important to have that this be done in a collaborative way, whether it's uh, the parent collaborating with their with their youth, or with their child, or clinicians working with with young people and uh, and families. And so, I think especially for uh, older adolescents, it's uh, I don't know that it would be very productive for a parent to start saying, you know, I'm taking away your phone from you or putting, you know, treating them as as a younger child. I think it's it's important to have a open communication, ongoing, a collaborative relationship. And what this speaks to is the importance of having a, an ongoing relationship uh, between the parent and the child uh, overall. Um, I think, um, you know, in this day and age, especially in larger cities where, where we're all very busy um, and we're constantly running around, and uh, you know, adolescence is at a time about uh, of uh, is a time of seeking independence and and wanting to explore the world beyond the boundaries of the home. Um, I think it's important to maintain um, an ongoing positive relationship with one's children. And and we do know uh, that uh, nurturing environments, uh, both at home and at school and in general, uh, help promote resilience, uh, including in the context of social media and smartphones. Um, and I would say the same applies to when clinicians are working with with uh, young people. Often, uh, you know, adolescents hate being lectured to, and and often 
they've heard it already, uh, and sometimes they haven't, but and often they have. And so uh, clinicians need to be very mindful of that when interacting with that. So first and foremost, you need a collaborative relationship. Uh, this issue should be pursued in a collaborative way, in an exploratory, non-judgmental, and people, uh, and young people need to be met where they're at. You know, if you know, you can't talk to them about quitting uh, or decreasing the amount of uh, smartphone uh, use when they say, "I don't see a problem with it." So in that case, it's about uh, providing them education about uh, the, the issues with it. And then if they do recognize there's a problem, but they're not sure. Uh, how to go about uh, it or to what extent the problem is, that's when you start making plans, collaborating with them on what works. Carlene touched on sleep. I would say um, this is probably the, the most common intervention I have with young people around uh, uh, social media and smartphone use. It's around the impact of sleep. And I, and I will, uh, you know, work out with them something, you know, negotiate with them something that works out. You know, ideally I would say no, no screens within a couple hours prior to bedtime, but uh, some young people go along fine with that. Others are find it more challenging. So you say, okay, let's let's find some common ground. Maybe maybe within an hour of bedtime to start with, or maybe let's let's use some screen covers to decrease the blue light, um, and then uh, commending them on on every small step. So I think having a working positive relationship, whether as parents or as uh, clinicians is key to be able to make any headway in this. Like same with any intervention for that matter. You know, increasingly young people are recognizing that, uh, you know, social media uh, and excessive social media and smartphone use uh, can have an uh, adverse effect in their lives and are trying to take steps themselves uh, to limit this. But sometimes I'll see a young person ask them, you know, how much time they spend on their phone. They'll say, oh, too much, you know, things like that. I saw a young person once who, who shared she had uh, lost her cell phone for a couple of weeks and then realized she felt so much better. And when she found it, she just deleted many of the social media accounts, left just the basic stuff. So I just want to say that it's nice that uh, young people are starting to recognize this as, uh, as a challenge uh, in their lives. That's the conclusion that I came to after reading all the evidence that you presented was that what I felt most comfortable with was limiting screen use at bedtime. So I hear what you're saying, that that's a good place to start. What is the role for public health and schools in addressing social media and smartphone use, if any? So, I mean, I think uh, the first and most straightforward is, is education. Education, both from a public health perspective, um, with community-based programs, but also in schools. Um, schools are well aware of these uh, issues, and, and in some jurisdictions, they've set limits in terms of uh, uh, cell phone use in classrooms. Uh, the results have been mixed. There's been some positive results, but in uh, other situations, it, uh, it's hard to enforce bans. And again, you know, especially where with older adolescents, this needs to be developmentally appropriate. And then, again, just same as we were talking with the parents interacting with their uh, children and the clinicians interacting with patients and families, I would say the teacher here is key. So if when uh, the teacher that has a good relationship with their, with their students, uh, where there's mutual trust and there's respect for autonomy, the young people uh, are more uh, responsive and, and there can be positive uh, effects to uh, putting limits on cell phone use uh, in the classroom. The other thing I think 
we should ask questions as a society. Um, you know, this, as I mentioned earlier, uh, these social media platforms are designed deliberately to capture attention in highly sophisticated ways. And um, uh, we should we should ask ourselves: Are we okay with that? Should we be we know, we know, we regulate gambling, for example, and, and so is that something we should be concerned about? Uh, that there's basically no regulation whatsoever in this respect. Some social media companies have uh, been uh, active in in trying to do things like uh, uh, remove uh, images that involve graphic depictions of self harm and suicidality and such. Uh, but it's a challenge for them. But uh, uh, I don't know that that's enough on its own. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I mean, the uh, and I think you know, Dr. Abujade is right that you know businesses are to some extent starting to think about you know social responsibility and redesigning platforms. You know, a notable recent example that comes to mind is Instagram. Relatively recently, uh, stopped displaying the number of likes that a post has, um, and likes, of course, are sort of dopamine going off in the brain. Um, and so physicians, I think, can probably function as advocates at, at a societal level in terms of making some of those uh, changes and advocating for some of those changes. The other thing that comes to mind when we think about the classroom and the role of the classroom is, you know, is there a role within sexual health education uh, to talk about the impact of smartphones and social media? You know, certainly when you look at um, risky online behavior of young people. There are many concerns um, around the so-called phenomenon of sexting um, and sending um, sexual images back and forth. Um, and you know, young people with mental health challenges are particularly um, vulnerable to that kind of behavior. Um, and so, alerting young people of the risks online, um, I think, is probably important within that context at schools. This has been a really informative discussion. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Elia Abejaude and Dr. Carleen Trirnecht Naylor. Dr. Abejaude is a psychiatrist, researcher, and clinical educator based at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Dr. Trirnecht Naylor is a fifth year psychiatry resident at the University of Toronto. To read the analysis article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>